The title of this evening's talk is Practice Here and There, Practice Everywhere. <clears throat> so here we all are, um, coming close to the end of our intensive practice period here, soon to be uh, taking ourselves, uh, taking our practice out there, wherever there uh, may be for you, which uh, for most of you will entail a much longer period, we could say, of intensive practice with the possibility of wherever you go, wherever you are, there's your practice. I think that uh, many of us come to the end of a retreat with some thoughts and feelings that aren't so dissimilar to those that we came into retreat with. For many people, though there's a feeling of excitement and readiness to go into an extended period of intensive practice, Just before it's time to enter in, there may be the feeling that, well, I'm just not quite finished yet out here. Just a few more days, maybe another week, and then I can get done everything that needs to be done, and then I'll be ready to go into retreat. And it seems that some similar thoughts come up for some of us when it's time to come out of retreat an excitement and a readiness uh, to go into the larger world. And yet, maybe there are such thoughts as, well, just a little more time, a few more days, a couple more weeks would be good, a month would be great to do what needs to be done, and, and then I'll be finished. Then I'll really be ready to come out, and then I'll really be ready to go out there. And sometimes on either end, the going in to retreat and the coming out of retreat, there may be some degree of reluctance, resistance, maybe some fear of the unknown, or fear of the seeming known, or maybe essentially just fear of change, fear of ending one way and entering into another way. You might check in with yourself and see if there may be some of these kinds of thoughts and feelings happening. Similar conditioned patterns within your own mind and heart coming up now at the end of the retreat that you may have experienced to some degree when you were preparing to come here or that you may have felt at the onset of the retreat. And of course, there's the chance that we might not feel anxiety in either direction, entering into or coming out of a retreat. There's certainly the possibility that one might feel a clear, clean, open readiness and happiness without any particular expectations or worries about moving on to the next thing moving on to the next phase and form that life will take. 
at a retreat that I taught a number of years ago, one person described coming out of retreat as feeling like she was descending, she said, landing, feeling the force of gravity, as she described it, coming back to the earth. There's a beautiful piece that was written <clears throat> by the American astronaut Russell Swikert regarding his experience traveling in outer space. And I'd like to share this with you. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with the window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour, ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and when it comes through to you so powerfully that you're the sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time. And you know all those people down there. And they are like you. They are you. And somehow you represent them. You're up here as the sensing element, that point out on the end. And that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not just for yourself. The eye that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront, and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility, and it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference, and it's so precious. And of course, there is a change about to happen and various changes that occurred during this time in retreat. And so reflecting on the supports available to you as we begin to make the change out of retreat into life in the larger world. One change being the pace of life. At least outwardly, life appears to and feels like it moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet we're supported as we move into the larger world with some understanding from our weeks of practice of how quickly and how incessantly things change within our own body and mind. 
how quickly and how incessantly things change all around us, even in the slow pace of retreat life. This understanding, this wisdom is a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat life to practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in the day-to-dayness or the moment-to-momentness of the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily lives. And we've had some taste of the impersonality of change. We've tasted that we can't stop change. And that even though we might try, we can't hold on to anything. And maybe we've tasted how painful it is to try. As concentration, metta, and mindfulness developed over these weeks, we've had some glimpse that whatever it is that we experience in the body, mind, and heart, that any of these experiences come together because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then, it, what, whatever it is, changes quite quickly or just simply disappears. These tastes, this understanding, has a very deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations and what we choose to do or not do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices that we make, more connection and clarity in our relationships to others, more clarity in what's important and appropriate, what's wholesome and truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down. A life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So this is certainly a change from here to there. Life in retreat offers comparatively very little outside distraction. We sit, we walk, listen to Dhamma talks occasionally, we eat, we do our yogi job, we sleep, we've spoken just a little every few days. And within this container of simplicity, you've been supported to develop a depth and a clarity of focused attention, and to mindfully pay attention to what occurs in the body, mind, and heart. And you've been invited to sense, see, and know, is the mind, the heart, opening to, connecting with, and receiving the breath or various other occurrences? in the body-mind continuum? 
Or is the attention spaced out, disconnected, separated, or caught, stuck in some physical phenomena or thought form? With all of this practice and learning bringing us closer to sensing, seeing, and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, calm, joy, and a sense of well-being. We're learning to recognize, respect, and care about all of these cycles within our mind, heart, and body. This sensing, seeing, and knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. All of us, we're all just so similar. No matter who we are, where we live, our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our color, we're really just variations on themes. We're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, virtue, living ethically, respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in our heart. As we come to see and know this through intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language, and it affects our actions. Seeing into our own heart, our own mind, affects and informs the motivation behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and the habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. The possibility of engaging the refuges and precepts as part of our daily practice, maybe beginning our day chanting them to ourselves. This can be a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. There's a particular rendition of the precepts that was written by a woman named Stephanie Kaza from Green Gulch Zen Farm uh, that I'd like to share with you because it's really uh, particularly relevant uh, to daily life in the larger world. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. 
Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. For me, uh, as I'm sure for many of you, over my years of practice, the simplicity of, of the retreat setting, um, in, the, in the simplicity of the retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life in retreat and outside of retreat in a way that serves, in a way that supports the process of the purification of the heart, which is intimately related to the process of liberation. And sometimes this happens through the conscious intention to let go of particular habits of distraction. And as our practice deepens, there's more and more often a letting go, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and naturally relinquish the habits and the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we're learning and that many of you have already committed yourselves to. And it's so very often around quite ordinary, very mundane aspects of our life. So a very simple and very mundane example. There was a time when I would get into my car and I would automatically turn on the radio. Now it would be like push in a, this was before you could push in a CD or an MP3. And at some point I began to notice it as a distraction. And so I decided not to turn it on all the time. So I'd begin driving somewhere and and I'm not kidding, my hand would sort of automatically begin to move towards the radio knob. seemed like it was on its own, although there was an intention, but I wasn't aware. The force of habit is so incredibly strong. So, mindfully, I'd bring my hand back down. And at some point, I did begin to notice the intention, the thought, to turn on the radio. And then the choice was really available 
to or not to. So looking at another change from here to out there. In this simple and a quiet space of retreat, there may have been some big days. There may have been some big events for you. And an especially uh, big day or big event for some of you might have been something as mundane as laundry day. Well, they're laughing because it's true. <laughs> for me, there were times um, in earlier years of long intensive retreats when laundry day was such a big, huge addition to my day that I would find myself planning for it or at least just thinking about it the day before, before I went to sleep the night before laundry day occurred. And then it would be one of the very first things that came into my mind when I woke up that morning. So yes, you know what I'm talking about. And how about the big event of the midday meal? What will we have for lunch today? Or even what will we have for lunch tomorrow after you've already finished the midday meal today? Or the big event of having a one-on-one practice interview? A poem by wandering Japanese Buddhist poet Nanao Sakaki, who died uh, a few years ago now. And he calls this poem, A Big Day. Getting water at the spring. Carrying firewood. Chattering with the neighbor. The sun goes down. A big day. Many years ago, Nanao used to spend time up at the Lama Foundation, which is just about 30 minutes north of here. And he'd show up at Lama with his knapsack and uh, sleeping bag and stay there for a few days. And they were always very happy to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains with just this, nothing more than what he'd arrived with. And he'd often be gone for a couple of weeks at a time, and then he'd be back at Lama. A very dear friend of mine who um, was the coordinator at Lama during those years told me a story about um, one of these times when Nanao came in for for a day or two from his time out in the mountains. And he asked her and another friend if they would like to come out to his camp for dinner in a few days. Well, my friend was really delighted because this was something really special, something, in fact, that had never before been offered. So on the appointed day and time, my friend and the other invitee found their way out to Nanao's camping spot by following his very careful directions. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there was no food ready or no food in view for dinner. And he told them not to bring anything with them. He said that it wouldn't be necessary. 
that there was plenty of food, he'd said. Well, my friend thought that maybe they'd um, made a mistake, that this was the wrong day. But Nanao was delighted to see them, and he welcomed them very heartily, and then he said, well, now let's go out and find dinner. And my friend said that they walked and picked and dug various wild foods. And they came back and they built a fire and cooked what needed cooking and had an incredibly delicious dinner. She said they finally understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or weeks at a time with almost nothing and come back strong, healthy, and very happy. Once someone in an interview spoke about the simplicity of life on retreat as having a good taste. We taste it, this good taste. And we take it with us. And it wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes big ways. And of course, life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our home and family life, our monastic life, our work life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And we often do this little by little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices, for instance, in, the relationship, to the, in relationship to the work that we do, in the way that we spend time with partners and family and friends. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really, truly have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, almost every aspect of our life. We really, truly have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course, there are certainly some complex responsibilities and commitments that we must continue with. The taste of simplicity in retreat has another really beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires the way that we expend our energy or spend our energy, what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex activity, complex relationships or any relationships, and various responsibilities. From our experience in retreat, we learn, we see, and we come to know more and more clearly when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy. We take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally, find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated, unskillful ways of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. 
and we begin to feel more balance within ourself and within our life as a whole. And we find that, in fact, we have more energy and more time available for our life to more directly and more clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat and as we reconnect to a larger world. Simplicity being a great support and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. Considering our whole life as our practice, how can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? It's really a most important and essential question. And of course, the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we integrate a clear, focused attention and mindful awareness based in kindness into all the dimensions of our being, our work, our play, our creative endeavors, all are all part of our practice. And we can find many moments throughout our day when we can very simply bring our attention, for instance, to the sensations of the breath, the body moving, in almost any circumstance or any activity. And from this perspective, really, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. Really, all of the conditions and all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. All of the joys and irritations, the annoyances and the delights, the frustrations, the satisfactions, the pleasant and the unpleasant, the likes and the dislikes. All that we experience in life in retreat and in life outside of retreat. The mirrors for our practice. A woman who sat a retreat that I taught in Israel a, a number of years ago now and who had long before I met her lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff. Gurdjieff. She told me a story, really, that's really quite a wonderful mirror of a particular and uh, difficult uh, situation being the perfect practice. She said that in this community in France, there was an old man who, she said, was a very difficult, very irascible fellow. She said he was messy and argumentative. He wouldn't cooperate, he wouldn't help with things, and basically didn't get along with others in the community. She said that no one liked him very much, and that he himself didn't seem to like very many of the people in the community either. She said that he tried for quite a long time to uh, stay in the community, but that it was very difficult for him as well as for others so difficult that he finally left and he went to Paris. 
he said he couldn't bear it anymore. So Gurdjieff followed this man to Paris and tried to convince him to return to the community. But the man said no, he couldn't do it. He said it was just too hard to be there. Well, Gurdjieff finally uh, offered this guy a monthly stipend to come back, which the man couldn't refuse because he was a very poor person. And so he returned to the community. And when he arrived, this woman said everyone in the community was aghast. She said they were even more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there because they themselves actually had to pay to live in that community. So a lot of complaining and carrying on, and Gurdjieff called a meeting. And he listened to everyone's complaints, and then he laughed, she said. And he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. That's why you pay me, and I pay him. (laughs) The conditions of our lives, the people in our lives, are all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread, yeast for the purification of the heart and mind, yeast for our awakening, yeast for our liberation. There's one teaching among the 84,000 teachings that the Buddha is said to have offered where the Buddha uses a metaphor of a mother who has four sons uh, for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings, metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka, unconditional loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. And each of the sons, because of his particular age and personality and particular karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of the divine abidings. Well, I have only three sons, but they have managed to be some of my strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years. Our closest people can be some of our best teachers, just simply through them being who they are, what they need from us, what they give to us, and what they show us. So an example, my two oldest sons, who will be uh, 49 years old in June, they're identical twins. And they continue to show me all through these, all these years to teach me a relationship that's rare. They're each other's best friends. And although, of course, when they were small, they would fight with each other, as children do, over all of these years, they've never talked about each other or to each other in negative, judgmental ways. They never, they really never uh, put each other down. 
no matter what the other one is doing or feeling, no matter what the other one has done or not done, no matter how the other's life is going. And they're not each other's keeper. They've never been disrespectful or codependent with each other. And I think this is really quite a rare friendship. And sometimes I'm in awe of it. And I always learn from it. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal the truth to us. And some words from the Buddha. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. And a poem. It's called Table. And it's uh, from the Turkish by, and I don't quite know how to pronounce the name, but Edeb Kansaver. It's uh, translated by Richard Tillinghast. A man filled with gladness, with the gladness of living, put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there. He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window, sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel, the softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that had happened in his mind. What he wanted to do in life, he put that there. Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine, the man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he'd wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm. The man kept piling things on. The key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn moves along this sacred noble path is first and foremost, a clear, concentrated attention that is very deeply grounded in mindfulness and kindness. And it's true, as some people ask about at the end of, of, the retreat, of a retreat, it's true there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you've developed over these weeks. A change from how it is in retreat 
such as this, when we reconnect to a larger world. And it's true that there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of mindfulness and investigation from how it is in a retreat such as this as we reconnect to a larger world. And although the same degree and depth of concentration, mindfulness, and investigation is not usually totally sustained outside of the retreat setting, the concentration, mindfulness, and investigative capacities that have developed, along with the multidimensional facets of understanding, wisdom, that have blossomed for each of you in a retreat like this, are a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. There's a change, but we don't lose it. Mindfulness, concentration, investigation, and the continued continued blossoming of metta and wisdom are always available to us. Many years ago, at the end of a two-month retreat that I sat with Saida Upandita and two other uh, Burmese monks, I had a brief conversation with one of the monks at the end of the retreat, and I asked him if there was any advice that he might give me around taking practice into the whole of my life. And this was his response. He said, you need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. And you need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. Pretty good advice. (laughs) That's all he said. (laughs) And there are some particular ways that I and others have found to be very helpful in bringing a simple and yet direct and immediate concentrated mindful attention into the whole of our lives. One suggestion from another teacher is that at the end of each hour of the day, take just one or two minutes to just stop and be still and simply connect with your breath at the Anapana spot or in the belly or in and through the whole body. So however long your waking day is, That could be 15 to 30 minutes of a very directly focused, mindful time. With each of these minutes having an effect on the moments that follow. Another way to carry your practice into your daily life is to remember at moments during the day to, for instance, touch into the physical sensations through contact. The feet on the ground the bottom touching the chair, hands touching each other. Mindfulness and concentration are immediately connected with and strengthened each time you do this. And I think the only hard thing about doing these brief meditation sessions is to remember to do them. I know some people who uh, put little sticky notes to themselves around their home or at their workplace to remind them to check in. So, for instance, a note on the bathroom mirror 
breath or a little stand-up note maybe on your desk at home, at work or at home saying, still breathing. (laughs) Or a note that might say, metta now. Or here, now. Just some examples. There was a fellow on staff at the Insight Meditation Society some years ago who worked in the front office who had a a small uh, stand-up note on his desk and it said, buttocks was to remind him to bring his attention to the touch points of his bottom on the chair every now and then. It also made people laugh when they saw it for the first time. The current director of the Forest Refuge has programmed his computer to sound the ring of a mindfulness bell every 45 minutes to remind him to stop and to check in with his breath for a couple of moments. He said it's incredibly helpful through his very busy day. Walking meditation can be a very important and powerful aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect of continuing to connect with and strengthen concentration and mindfulness. All of us walk at least a few miles just going from place to place through a day, certainly through a few days or a week. And we can make some of this walking a time of practice. When I lived at IMS as the resident teacher for staff, my workroom and my living space were uh, up on the second floor, both the same room in the main building of the Meditation Center. And because I did many practice interviews with staff and I had a lot of meetings, I didn't really have much time available during the day to do walking meditation. So I decided at one point that every time I went up and down the stairs, it would be my walking practice time. And so most days I did this. And at one point, a staff member came in uh, for his practice interview. And he was obviously quite agitated. And with uh, some uh, difficulty, he told me that he was very upset because I was ignoring him. He said that he felt abandoned by me. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs, I wouldn't even look at him. And he, he was wondering if I was angry with him. Well, I told him uh, that uh, going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation time and that I certainly hadn't abandoned him, nor was I at all angry with him. It's just that I was practicing as deeply as I could going up and down the stairs. Well, of course, this completely changed his attitude. And he turned and said, well, I'm just so happy for you. He told me he thought it was just a great idea. People may not always understand what you're up to when you integrate your practice into your life in small ways. Do it anyways. Use your life wisely. And it's, of course, really helpful to connect with others who practice. We certainly can see and feel the benefit of this, as some of you have mentioned uh, this, these past weeks, we can certainly see and feel the benefit of this in a retreat setting. 
if you're not connected, at least sometimes, with others, with the group, even just a group of two or three to sit with once in a while, check in and see if there's a sitting group near you. And if there isn't one, start one. Which might mean just asking one or two other people that you know who meditate to or those or one or two other people who might learn to meditate to join you once a week or once every other week. You can sit together, maybe first sit together, and then maybe read something out loud or listen to something, listen to a Dhamma talk. And then it's helpful to take turns each week as to who chooses the reading or, or the Dhamma talk to be listened to. And then maybe have some discussion, some Dhamma discussion about what you've been listening to and maybe some discussion also about your practice. The Buddha, in a conversation with Ananda, spoke about the tremendous importance of connection with spiritual friends. And the Venerable Ananda, in speaking with the Buddha, said, Half of this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends. Companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha responded to Ananda by saying, Don't say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. Use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment as much as possible be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is one of the greatest arts in life maybe perhaps the greatest. And it can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. As we go out into the larger world, if we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable that calm, tranquility, and joy increase. It's inevitable that peace increases and that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. And another Nanausakaki poem. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. And I'd like to close the talk this evening with uh, two poems. First, uh, Another poem by Nanao, a tribute from him, we could say, to our practice. He calls this poem a love letter, or called it a love letter. Within a circle of one meter, you sit, pray, and sing. 
Within a shelter ten meters large, you sleep well. Rain sounds a lullaby. Within a field a hundred meters large, raise rice and goats. Within a valley a thousand meters large, gather firewood, water, wild vegetables, and amanitas. Within a forest ten kilometers large, play with raccoons, hawks, poison snakes, and butterflies. Mountainous country Shinano, a hundred kilometers large, where someone lives leisurely, they say. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, go see the southern coral reef in summer, or the winter drifting ices in the Sea of Oxt. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, walking somewhere on the earth. Within a circle 100,000 kilometers large, swimming in the sea of shooting stars. Within a circle a million kilometers large, upon the spaced-out yellow mustard blossoms, the moon in the east, the sun in the west. Within a circle ten billion kilometers large, pop far out of the solar system, mandala. Within a circle ten thousand light-years large, the galaxy full-blooming in spring. Within a circle one billion light-years large, Andromeda is melting away into snowing cherry flowers. Now within a circle ten billion light-years large, all thoughts of time, space, are burnt away. There again you sit, pray, and sing. You sit, pray, and sing. And closing the talk with a poem by Native American poet Joy Harjo. She calls this Eagle Poem. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon to the one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like Eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed, because we are born and die soon within a true circle of motion. Like eagle rounding out the morning inside us, we pray that it will be done in beauty in beauty. And let's sit together for just a couple of moments. Mm -hmm. 